The uh, scripture that uh, we're looking at was already read, uh, Matthew chapter 14, and uh, that's uh, beginning at uh, verse 22. I think it's an uh, event in the life of our Lord that is very well known. Uh, following the uh, feeding of 5,000, uh, plus it says 5,000 5, men plus women and children. I don't know why it's worded that way. certainly would not be acceptable today. And, uh, but after feeding them, Jesus asks his disciples to take a boat and to go over to the other side of the lake, intending to meet up with him later. And so he dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up on the mountainside to be alone and to pray. But the disciples find themselves in a storm. They're in a boat, they're on a lake, sea, and there's a storm, there's a big storm. It's a big storm without Jesus on board. So how do they react? Confident? Desperate? Courageous? With faith? With doubt? Maybe a little of each. And, uh, but as we look at the story, we will see a real demonstration of faith, both in its strength and its weakness. Uh, certain things we can learn from it, of course, about being a people of faith. And so I want to look at it this morning from the standpoint of, first of all, the context, meaning the setting in which they found themselves. And then secondly, the response, and that would be particularly the response of Peter. And then finally, the Lord of faith, the context of faith, the response of faith, and then the Lord of faith. But by context, of course, we're talking about the venue, the setting that they find themselves in. They're out in the middle of the lake, it's dark, the wind is against them, and this particular lake is notorious for sudden storms which could even be dangerous. And they're caught in the middle of one right now. And they're battling a strong headwind and at the mercy of the rough sea. It's been a long night. It's now about the fourth, the fourth watch, which was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., somewhere in there, and they've made very little progress. Can you imagine what their thoughts might have been? Can you imagine the kind of conversation they would be having with one another? Like, maybe like this, man, why did we come here anyway? What a dumb choice we made whose whose idea was this anyway was it James's idea was it John's <laughs> it must have been Peter but you know and I know that it wasn't Peter verse 22 immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. And that word, Jesus made them, is a strong verb. He compelled them. 
It was Jesus. They were following the precise instructions of their Lord. And look what happened. Big storm. Do we perhaps think that when we get into the storms of life, we must have missed God's best plan for us? Do we perhaps think that way? Surely we're out of God's will. The Lord would want an easier, clearer sailing. Oh, wouldn't he not? Hmm. But here's the thing. They did exactly what Jesus asked them to do, and they ended up in a storm. There's no suggestion here or elsewhere in the scriptures that if we follow the Lord faithfully, we, we will be exempt from misfortune. That if I am in God's will, then things will go smoothly. God's word simply does not teach that his people will never experience things like job losses, cancer, accidents, early death, doesn't promise, there doesn't guarantee that our children won't disappoint us or have serious problems or that I will be exempt from pain or even that I will always have good emotional health. I remember a friend of mine suggesting that depression had, you know, couldn't be God's will. It had to be of the, of the enemy. I don't find that in Scripture. I think we should expect and assume that we have the same kind of struggles as anyone else, and that can include difficult emotional difficulties, mental health, depression. Obviously, if we live properly, the chances of certain kinds of misfortune are reduced. The Christian lifestyle should be a healthy and wholesome way of life, and it is, and that does reduce many of life's problems. But immunity from crisis is just not there. And you think of Jesus himself. He had to enter life as it is, in all of its fallenness, in all of its tragedy. He had to experience it. He had to see it through human eyes, to feel it through human emotions, and to experience physical pain in a physical body. And frankly, that's the glory, that's the wonder of the Incarnation. And so it is with us. We, like him, participate in life as it is. And when you think about it, consider how our ability to influence and to, to simply be with people in their difficulties would be reduced if we were free from all of those things. Little ability to sympathize. Little ability to suffer with, to understand the pain of others. And Imagine if, upon our commitment to Christ, we immediately were sin-free, never again failing, never even tempted. How artificial our life would seem, and how could we then relate to ordinary folk who struggle with sin? And if everybody treated us well, where would be the place for offering grace and forgiveness to others? No, it means that all of us live in a context where there will be storms from time to time. Storms are a part of life, and storms are a part of the Christian life. And it's into that setting, into that context, into the very center of the storm, 
that Jesus comes to them. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now just imagine the scene. Imagine their experience. They've had to fight a strong contrary wind all night. The boat has been harassed by waves. They're very concerned, on edge. Maybe they're even afraid for their very lives. And then there's the specter of someone walking among the waves on the lake, in the darkness, walking on the lake. <laughs> no wonder, as it says in verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost. They cried out in fear. <laughs> That's to be expected. How could it be otherwise, given their setting, their context? And then it's in, but it's in that setting that Jesus comes to them. Immediately he said to them, take courage. It is I. Or fear not. It is I. Don't be afraid. That word of assurance, fear not. You know, I'm told by scholars that it's the most common command in all of scripture. Fear not, fear not. But I note here that it doesn't stand alone. It's not like God's word is saying, don't be afraid, regardless. No, it's not saying that. He's saying, it is I. Don't be afraid. Even as we read at the beginning, it, it's in the situation, context we're talking about here, in the context of his presence with us that we're told not to be afraid. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. On that basis, whom shall I be fear? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Fear not. And so here in their storm, Jesus comes to them and speaks, don't be afraid, I am with you. And that's for us this morning. Whatever your storm, he is part of it and he wants to assure you of his presence. He won't necessarily remove the storm, but he will be with you in it. And that's what matters. Context. Storm. Well, let's look at how Peter responded, the response of faith. <laughs> of course, it's predictable that it would be Peter who responds first. I, I like Peter, and maybe it's because he is so different. But we always talk about impetuous Peter, impulsive, always active. Don't, as we used to say, I don't think Peter would ever allow a lot of grass to grow under his feet. And Peter's pattern, talk first and then think, right? That's our Peter. Well, how did he respond? He responded in faith. And we see both his strength and the weakness of that faith. And I think we see ourselves there too, that sometimes our faith is strong and sometimes it's not so strong. But I notice, I notice first of all, very simply, A, it was an act of faith. Faith in action. 
And uh, that's the way New Testament faith, that's the way Old Testament faith is. It's really about acting on it. It's not, it's not simply believing something to be true, but it's acting on it. As it says in James, you say that you believe in God. Well, that's good. The devils also believe. And that's in chapter 2, and that's in the context of faith without action, without works, is dead. And so uh, that's how we are saved. We're saved by a faith that is an active faith that commits. Well, Peter acted, but then looking further, I note here that his faith was a submissive kind of faith. He was under Jesus' authority. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. <laughs> you know, I'd like to come. I'd like to be where you are. If you're walking on the water, I want to join you there. I would love to come, but only if you say so, will you let me come. Submissive faith. Sometimes strong, confident, bold faith gets confused with a demanding kind of faith. For some reason, thinking that it might be proper to demand things like healing, or success, or signs, good health. It might sound impressive, and certain texts out of context might almost sound like that is how we should be, and yet that would somehow be reversing roles with our Lord. It's like then he becomes our errand boy. But there's what I would call an identity confusion, forgetting that it is we who are his servant and not the other way around. I'm inclined to agree with Larry Crabb when he says, the necessary foundation for any relationship with God is a recognition that God is God and we are not. We therefore have no business demanding anything of anyone, no matter how fervently our soul longs for relief from pain. It is wrong, he says, to internally demand that your loved one become a Christian, or your spouse stop drinking, or your biopsy be negative, or your rebellious child straighten up. He says it's wrong to demand that kind of thing. And then he says, desire much, pray for much, but demand nothing. To trust God means to demand nothing. I want to say, I, you know, I, I, I think I agree with that. And that was Peter here. He asked for much. <laughs> ah, pretty tall order, really, or request. Let me walk on the water. But he was asking permission. And he accepted direction from his Lord. The difference is not only important, but critical. It was a submissive faith. See, it was a bold faith. Peter had definite permission and direction. Jesus said, come, then Peter took the risk. I mean, imagine getting out of that boat. You know, when I, when I think of the 12 disciples out there, I don't think I would have been Peter. I think I would have been one of the others. I think I would rather be on the cautious side. But Peter was on the take the risk side. 
John Maxwell has a poem about a man who was very cautious. He writes, there was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked, he never tried, he never sang or prayed. And when he one day passed away, his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claim he never died. And he goes on to say, people who play it safe continually miss opportunities and seldom make progress. It's the same way in baseball. You cannot steal second base with your foot on first. He's an American writer, and of course it would have to be about baseball. But he's right. Good active faith will call for some risk-taking. Faith isn't always safe, humanly speaking. We are called to identify with Christ, and that can be risky. We are called to stand up for what is right. We're called to put integrity ahead of expediency. We're called to be generous, and sometimes that seems like a financial risk. We are called upon to treat people with grace. We're even called to defend the defenseless. You know, we don't hear a lot about that. And I want to highlight it because I don't hear a lot about it. But Proverbs says, speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And that can take courage. That can take courage. Putting it all together, the courage to dare to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let's be a people of faith rather than fear. I know as a congregation, there's a lot of uncertainty about the future. I appreciated George taking me out this last week to see the property that you have purchased. What is the future? Lots of unknowns. But I think we can highline from this text and the rest of Scripture, let's be a people of faith rather than a people of fear. Let's be a people of faith. Many years ago now, there was a book that came out written by John Ortberg. Some of you, I'm sure, read it. It's entitled, If You Want to Walk on the Water, <laughs> You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. Yeah. Part of faith is risk-taking, what, you know, what seems risky from the non-faith standpoint. A, B, C. The next one is D. Now there's 26 letters in the alphabet. We've just got started. Right now we're at D. Just kidding. It was a faith that looked to Jesus and not. And I think in both cases we learn from it. Verse 29, come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat. He walked on the water and came toward Jesus. So far, so good. 
He came towards him. The only way he could know how to come towards him would be to keep his eye on the Lord. He had his eye on Jesus. <laughs> but then verse 30 says, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. It was a faith that looked to Jesus, but then not. <laughs> and isn't, isn't that like us? Isn't that so much like us? He saw the wind. Oh, he didn't see the actual wind, but he saw the wind was there based on what it was doing. He saw those boisterous waves. And what happened? Well, in noticing them, he was looking away from Jesus and he started to sink. There are storms all around us. Some of you might be in a pretty severe storm right now. But whatever it is, in the middle of your storm, keep looking to Jesus. In your hurt, over a broken relationship, keep looking to Jesus. When you've had an accident or you've experienced tragedy, Keep looking to Jesus. If your marriage fails, though you tried so hard, or your children go astray, or when you are no longer needed on the job, when you've been wronged, when the doctor says, you better check that out. And even when you're in the valley of the shadow, keep looking to Jesus. And here's another example. Even when your world falls apart because you made some bad choices, and we all make some bad choices, even then, keep looking to Jesus for understanding, for grace, for forgiveness, for wisdom, for new direction. Life's hard. Storms are real for all people, Christians and others. But as Christians, we have the privilege of the Lord being with us in the very center of the storm. And so, as believers, we have two options. We can allow the waves to get between us and the Lord, or we can allow those waves to push us nearer to him. And in Peter, we see both. The waves got between him and his Lord. But then in his desperation, he cried out and Jesus took hold of him. He was afraid, it says, beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately, verse 31, reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why? Did you doubt? And so Peter had a bold faith, and then he had a faith that faltered. Isn't that like me? Isn't that like you? But here's the thing. Even more important, Jesus was there even when, especially when, Peter's faith faltered. Frankly, our faith won't always be strong. Yet when our faith is weak, he remains strong and he is there all along. 
I might be hanging on to his hand, but you know, his hand is bigger and he's hanging on to me. This was real to me many years ago when our children were small. Uh, when we lived in Fort St. James, BC, and uh, well, when we left there, they were three, five, and seven, so uh, they were younger than that. Those many times we visited the big city of Prince George. We were in a little town called Fort St. James, and so it was different, and I remember walking down the sidewalk, and my goodness, they were hanging onto my hand, but I didn't trust them to hold me tight enough. I made sure that I held their hand. And so it has to be with our Lord. He is the one who has us in his much bigger hand. What's more important than the strength of our faith is the object of our faith. Who, what, our faith is placed upon. You know, we, 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 we hear the sentiment, it's good to have faith, and of course it's good to have faith. It's good to have strong faith. But more important is who is our faith placed in. Better to have weak faith in Jesus who can hold us up than strong faith in that which sooner or later will let us down. For example, if we have faith in our money, it'll let us down. Our skills, they'll let us down. Our own goodness, it'll let us down. Our popularity, our families, even our faith will let us down, as Peter illustrated, and much more me, you and I. But it isn't about our faith as much as it is about the one our faith is placed in. More important than the level of our faith is who our faith is placed in. Well, that brings me to the last point, the Lord of faith. Verse 32 and when they got into the boat, the wind died down. Then those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You notice how the main issue has shifted? It's no longer the storm. It's no longer the danger. They had been in distress they had seen this ghost walking on the sea. They were terrified. Peter had shown both bold and faltering faith. And now with Jesus in the boat, it is suddenly calm. Now the issue is Jesus' identity. Who is he? Their understanding has deepened. And we see in the Gospels how they keep coming around again and again, and perhaps each time their level of faith is just a little higher, or their understanding, but there's always that mixture. But here, it's the only place in the Gospel of Matthew where they refer, where the disciples refer to him as the Son of God, the full title. And the text tells us that they worship. The person of Jesus and who he is, that is the main question of the Bible. He is the central figure. 
The message of the kingdom is about him, the message of the gospel, the message of salvation. It's about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He is the Lord, and it's the main issue for you and me. Who is he, and how do I align my life fittingly with his identity? He's the eternal, resurrected, all-powerful Son of God, the Lord of the sea and the waves, and yes, the whole universe. And there's a lot in the Gospel of Matthew about his authority. You know, early in the Gospel, we see that he shows authority over the demons, and that's significant. Authority over the men who follow him and the women who follow him. Authority over diseases. Authority over the rest of nature, able to multiply the loaves and the fishes. And here, the illustration that he has authority over the sea. And so we follow him, not as a wise teacher only, not as a good example only, but as the Lord. And for this reason, we surrender, we worship, we follow those who were in the boat, it says, worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And the bottom line really is, is he your Lord? Is he my Lord? Is he Lord in all of my situations? In the way I relate to people? In the way I do business? In the way I do my business dealings with complete integrity because he is my Lord in the way that I respond to people who mistreat me, in the way I go about my everyday routine. Is he Lord in my good times? And today especially, let's highline, make him Lord in my storms, in the difficult times.